Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you'll find insight, analysis, and the story behind the numbers. Welcome to BL Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas. Today, we have with us Mr. Deepak Maheshwari, uh, who's a Delhi-based consultant and researcher with a keen interest in the interplay of public policy, technological innovation, and social economic development. Deepak is also a senior visiting fellow at uh, ICRIA and also an advisory board member at the Software Freedom Law Center. And he was also instrumental in setting up some of the bodies like Nixie, and we also had the Internet Service Providers Association. So welcome, uh, Deepak, to this podcast and hoping to have a good conversation with you today. Thanks, Thomas. And it's always a pleasure to be connected with people like you. So let me start off by asking you, Deepak, on your assessment of where we are in terms of digital infrastructure. And um, you, since you've seen the whole growth roadmap right from the early 1990s onwards, if at all, what are the key areas of concern that you have with the way we are progressing? What are the big successes as well that we have achieved? If we go back, let's say about 25 years back when we had just uh, started the internet services or mobile services around that time, there uh, obviously till now we have made tremendous progress, number one as a country. Secondly, what's happened is uh, that there's been a big level of democratization of access to these services like mobile. If you remember, like the, in the original days when the mobile services started on 31st July in 1995, the peak tariff used to be 16 rupees 80 passe for uh, outgoing call and half of that 8 rupees some passe for incoming calls. And in addition to that, of course, there used to be a fixed rental per month. 15 days later, on 15th of August, 1995, that's when VSNL started the internet services. And again, of course, we had the, this whole dial-up thing, the screeching modems, if you remember those. That yes, absolutely. The rates were like 5,000 rupees for a shell account, which was without any graphics or anything like that. It would just show you the text and, of course, 15,000 rupees for uh, the full web experience in that sense. So I think we have made a tremendous leap uh, over the past almost three decades now. When it comes to the digital infrastructure, I think uh, in terms of just the access part itself, if you see the transmission part, there are four broad portions in there. So obviously, there's a last mile or you may call it the first mile, so which is the connection to the consumer. Now, in the urban areas, by and large, yes, we do have pretty good connectivity, but still, even in a place like this, you do have some pockets of uh, dark, let's say, blind spots where you don't get any good coverage, uh, whether you're on a bridge or uh, although on the metro, etc., the connectivity is reasonably good now, even underground there. Then there's a big challenge we have is the middle line. Most of us are using mobile as the only device for connectivity. And once the signal goes up to the net, up to the tower, from the tower to the main switch, wherever the company's switch is of the telecom company, that's where we have a huge gap right now, which is in the in terms of the lack of fiber there. So only about one third of right. the towers in the country are fiberized, others are not. So even if you have a very high bandwidth, the consumer will not be able to get the full experience of that bandwidth if there's not adequate backbone between this tower and uh, main switch. Of course, we have this national long distance uh, backbone, which is, uh, let's say, from city to city or state to state. And by and large, a lot of that has already been fiberized overall. But still, uh, there are some areas, especially in Northeast and JNK and some of the islands areas, etc., where we still have challenges. Secondly, some of this national backbone also lacks in some places triangulations. So that means there's only one particular route to go from one place to another place. And in case there's any challenge there, whether due to power supply, due to cable cut or anything like that, typically there's not enough redundancy and alternate path in that sense. So that's the third thing. 
The fourth right. is in terms of international links. In 95, uh, 98, when we were talking about international bandwidth, we had just a few MB of international bandwidth. Today, of course, uh, most of the homes have got more connectivity at their uh, fiber connections that way as an individual connection compared to what we had as a country, I'm saying, in 1998. Right. And today we have multiple cables landing in the country. So, of course, we have cables landing in Mumbai, we have cables landing in Chennai, we have cables landing in uh, Kochi. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think most of these cables, they are providing a connectivity to a certain level in terms of international destinations. Some of the other places, we may still have lack of redundancy. By the way, most of the people may not realize, but the first submarine cable which landed in India was more than 150 years back. While we celebrate all these successes of uh, network rollout and we now have or we are now heading towards having about 900 million internet users. India is also now becoming one of the fastest growing e-commerce nation as well. And we boast of our digital growth in payments and in fintech. But on the other hand, we have this huge digital divide between urban and rural. Within urban also, there is a segment of the population for whom simple broadband service is now becoming unaffordable because telcos are hacking trees in tariff. So how do we ensure that the digital growth that we are seeing happens more even. So when we are looking at this whole thing around network coverage, etc. So today the fact is that 99% of India already has a coverage in terms of so in terms of the where there were the people are living, 99% of them are living in an area where we have a 4G signal already reaching them. Okay. But it doesn't mean that everybody is using these services. So a lot of people who are already using mobile services, many of them are still on 2G or 3G devices or networks, and they have not really upgraded themselves to a 4G device, although they do get the signal, by the way. This type of divide, however, I would say that Urban and rural is only one way to sort of look at it. Also have a divide, for example, uh, there's a huge gender gap also. We also have another uh, divide, which is in terms of the age. So most of the, so obviously, yes, India does have a huge youth bulge in terms of population. But even in terms of the proportions, if you see, so when it's very young, obviously, people may not really have those devices, etc. Although in urban areas, we are seeing increasingly those devices being sort of, I'll say, imposed in a way on the young children. Uh, from a very early age and at the same time if you see senior citizens also many of them may not have access to these type of devices or they may have other type of uh, apprehensions so for example there could be challenges of the motor movement or the challenge in terms of visibility or any other type of things that they may not be very keen or may not be very adept at using these services obviously there are huge gaps in terms of digital divide at the same time what is happening is a lot of effort is being done in terms of expanding the network coverage from the supply side. For example, does provide uh, support viability gap funding for extension of the fiber to rural areas or remote areas or hilly areas. Also, they help set up the telecom towers, etc. But that's only part of the story because you can take the horse to the water, but you can't really make it drink. When we are looking at these numbers, rural and urban or men and women, etc., I think that those numbers also, we should consider them with a certain level of nuance. For example, suppose there's a person whose address in the official records is of a rural area. Even if that person takes or uses that connection in an urban area, as per the official records, it will be shown as a rural subscriber because that's how the address is. Unlike a fixed line where you know the location of the connection, whether it's in a rural area or a urban area, in case of mobile, because I mean, the very word mobile itself provides that this type of fluidity across urban and rural areas. 
So you could be traveling, let's say, from a village to a city or, or back. Second thing is, when it comes to men and women, yes, there's a gender gap there. But at the same time, I would also say that there could also be situations where the connection could be in the name of the male member of the family, even if the device is actually being used by a woman. Okay, so that right. could be also uh, one reason that these numbers could be slightly skewed. But yes, I do acknowledge that there's this uh, gender divide in the country. But one particular area that I would just like to highlight is this. In the past few years, on one hand, yes, overall penetration and usage of mobile phones and internet has, etc. has increased. But what is more worrying is that the gender digital divide in India has actually grown compared to some of the other countries where it has actually narrowed down. So this yeah. is one particular area that I would like to flag that overall, yes, even amongst the women, the usage has been increasing. Same about men, but the gap actually has widened in India compared to some of the other countries. So I remember this, uh, you know, TRA consultation and the recommendations under Pradeep Bajal, who was then the regulator. And he had come out with a very interesting paper, which outlined what needs to be done to encourage people to basically take broadband connections, which is what you said about you can't take the... You can take the horse to the water, but you can't make it drink it. So I wonder if, you know, to, to spur that demand, whether... Some form of incentives should be given. I don't know if that will work, but I mean, it's it's something which which the TRI had recommended. I think it was in 2004. You know, the government obviously has not enacted upon this because it's obviously involves paying out money or cash directly to the to the consumers. But I mean, that's a thought uh, which comes to my mind. But you you spoke about you know the lack of um, fiberization, right? And and if you look at you know the telecom network and government projects such as BharatNet. And you mentioned about USO fund supported projects. Uh, so Bharatnet, you know that, you know, we've been talking about Bharatnet since I think 2009 or 10. Now it's like 13 years after and still we don't know exactly how much of this network is actually being used on ground. So, I mean, in my, I went to some of these villages where the network was rolled out. The fiber is there, but nobody is really using it. You know, nobody knows what to do. With it. it, it is connected in the Gram Panchayat office. The Gram Panchayat office is equipped with laptops and things that people can come in and use. But all those laptops and computers are gathering dust because nobody knows what to do with it. What is your view on, on Bharatnet? Can we really make this into a national mission mode kind of a thing? And also the USO fund you alluded to, how much of these projects really actually take off on ground? Because private telecom operators, I mean, as far as I thought they were, they would participate in these tenders. But then when it comes to actually meeting the requirements under the USO fund, I'm not sure if they're meeting those targets. Let me first start from this 2004 thing that you mentioned. So we yeah. actually had done a study in under the ages of CII at that point of time, which was called India's Broadband Vision 2010. Right. And based on that study, in fact, the TRA made its recommendation. And if I remember the date correctly, it was on 29th April 2003 that TRA made those recommendations. And uh, then in October, same year, in 2004, we had the broadband policy. So if right. it's national broadband policy of 2004, by and large, it had drawn from the TRA recommendation and TRA recommendations themselves had actually been based on the recommendation of the CII uh, report, which we had done with the PWC, but which by that time, by the time we had done this report, it had become IBM consulting, by the way. Okay. Anyway, what happened in that was obviously TRA could do only few things within that set of recommendations 
because those were within its ambit, where many of the other things were outside TRA's ambit. For example, there were things related to content, things related to time shifted TV, etc. that we see for the past few years, we are, this has become a general thing for us. But this was something that two decades back also, we had sort of looked at it and uh, looked at what to take. But what's happened is on the universal service obligation fund, if you see, I mean, the in the US has a USO fund uh, for almost a century. But even today, even in the US, you still have blind spots on uh, broadband coverage. Okay. Okay. About 2% of the US population still lives outside the broadband coverage. And in fact, just recently in March, President Biden and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, they have made some specific announcement about making uh, broadband affordable certain initiatives around that in March. Okay. Now, so there are situations and challenges all over the world in terms of taking these type of infrastructure, especially to rural areas where you have low population density. And in a country like in India, you also have a lower level of affordability, lower level of literacy compared to urban areas, lower level of English literacy, English fluency in that sense, I would say, uh, compared to urban areas. A lot of these content and many of these applications, etc., they are in English or at least the mm -hmm. interface is in English. Okay. And right. even the content itself might be available in, let's say, Malayalam or Hindi or Marathi or Tamil or anything else. But it is the initial interface itself is in English. So that is also a big challenge. So what is happening is that overall, globally, approach of the USO fund and has been about the supply side interventions that, okay, provide some sort of a subsidy to the users or typically to the infrastructure providers. Now, in the era of the fixed line, we did have a situation in the rural areas, the rental used to be lower than urban areas. Now, when it comes to mobile, you have a common tariff, whether you are in urban or in rural area, it doesn't really matter. Okay. So you can't really do that type of a tariff differential directly just because of you are a rural subscriber. Um, right. Because that's how the system itself is. At the same time, I think there are a whole lot of situations and models which should be considered in terms of furring and sustaining the demand. So what is happening is uh, Overall, we have done a great job in terms of fanning the network, providing the supply side support. Okay. Now, the USO fund itself should sort of reorient itself, its thinking that rather than focusing only on the supply side, it, this is something that they should start looking at demand side. In fact, almost three years back, I had written about it, that they should also be subsidy for devices as well as for services. And let me just explain it, how I'm suggesting that. So today, for example, we do have a direct benefit transfer platform, DBT platform. Yes. So based on whatever criteria the government has identified, you can provide scholarships, you can provide uh, other type of benefit to people in a targeted manner. Okay. And in a real-time manner, now in the same manner, suppose the government starts providing subsidized or totally or partially subsidized tariff to the users who qualify under these criteria. So for example, they could be about uh, disabled people, they could be about for women, they could be women in rural areas, uh, they could be different criteria for that matter. So whatever those criteria, based on that, you could provide DBT type of uh, support and you could even earmark it that this is something which can be used only for making the broadband payment. So it's not that I'm getting payment for, uh, let's say, in the name of broadband, I might be using it elsewhere because you can always yeah. link it that, okay, this is something that will be paid to the telecom operator. The second thing is in terms of devices. Now, a lot of people in India still continue to use what is known as a feature phones. And we still have a sale of approximately something like 30% of the total devices in the country which are being sold, mobile devices even today, 
they are actually non-smartphone, you may call it. And there are multiple reasons. So uh, one is obviously the price point. Okay. Second is uh, in terms of the size. Size is very small. Thirdly, right. uh, the battery life is much better. Fourthly, there are a lot of people who have concerns around the uh, touch screen or the if the screen gets damaged or something like that. Whereas these phones are much more rugged in that sense. There's an opportunity for a lot of people who are using such phones to be upgraded to, let's say, smartphones. Now, for that, huge challenges in the cost of the device itself. From 1200 rupees, how do I go to something like a 10,000 rupees device? Okay, that's a huge challenge there. So there could be something around that for devices support to them. Second is, even if I get that device, do I know how and what to use it for? Thankfully, in India, we do have tariffs which are, let's say, today, use as much as you want, let's say, within whatever speeds that we get. There should not be much of challenge in terms of build shocks for that matter. But at the same time, people do have a lot of concerns around what is it, even if I do get it, what would I use it for? So there's a lack of awareness. Lastly, there's also a lack of digital skills. So, for example, a lot mm. of people know how to dial a particular phone number, but they might not be able to know about how to use many of the other services or other applications. So, unless there's a value that they see why and how they should be able to use these services in a safe, trusted, open and accountable manner, then only they'll be in a position to start using. So, I would come back to this thing that from the USO fund, we should start providing targeted support on the demand side also, in both in terms of devices as well. So now I want to move on to, you know, the policy and regulatory part of uh, the entire thing. And one of the new regulations which the government is talking about is the Digital India Act 2023, which will essentially replace the IT Act of 2000. I have read debates on, on both sides of the spectrum on whether this will actually change anything on ground or whether these are all, you know, high level vision statement and we need to wait for the specifics. What are your thoughts, Deepak, on this? Uh, will it really change anything on ground? The fact is, I mean, currently we see we have multiple legislations in the country on the telecom and IT side. So we do have right. Indian Telegraph Act 1885. We have Indian Wireless Telegraphy Act 1933. We have, uh, of course, the Information Technology Act 2000. And then we also have, of course, TRA Act 1997. Okay. Then on top of these, we also have a national cybersecurity policy, which was in July 2013. We have a national policy on universal electronics accessibility, which came in October 2013. So there are different policies and different laws that we already have in the country at this point of time. We are looking at Digital India Act at this point of time for past two months. Yes, we do have the presentation that the Honorable Minister of State had made in Bangalore exactly two months back on 9th of March. And so that's one frame that we do have. And yes, it does provide some broad directions in terms of what is needed and why it is needed. However, without having any specific draft at this point of time, it's difficult to say what is it that this Digital India Act would actually do and what it should be doing. If you see in terms of this whole thing around legislations and policies, I think it would be useful to have a very broad Uber policy, over overarching policy framework coming, let's say, from the Prime Minister's office itself. Secondly, right. it should also then say that, okay, these are the other parts that would come. So there could be a, let's say, a Digital India Act. They could also, there was also this telecom bill. We saw a draft of that in September, which was released. Okay. There's also right. Digital Personal Data Protection Bill. Okay. Yes. And there was also this talk about a revised national cybersecurity strategy. 
Yes. The data governance framework, many other things which are being talked at this point of time. Yeah. So it would be useful to have uh, some sort of a overarching framework where which sort of defines that okay these are the laws that we are planning and these are the other uh, executive policies that we are planning i'm not even coming to the levels of rules and regulations which is a subsequent part but at least yeah. at this level and uh, i think first and foremost we need that and then yes you it should also come out with certain broad principles there that these are the foundational principles by which all of these will be guided through that so that set of principles and those objectives should become our uh, north star and after that then individual departments or individual uh, institutions they themselves can sort of uh, develop their own uh, laws or policies second thing that they should also do is not to just define how this particular policy will work but also define how this particular policy will, will work with the other instrument within the digital ecosystem. So for example, you have a national cybersecurity strategy, how it will work, let's say with the Digital India Act, as well as with the Digital Personal Data Protection Act as and when it comes. On the right. other hand, how does it work with other sectoral regulators? So for example, whether you have a Reserve Bank of India, whether you have SEBI, you have IRDAI, et cetera, and this is only in the financial sector. There's also, of course, electricity commissions. There are a whole lot of other regulatory and other bodies and how these laws will work with those. So what is going to be the mechanism of interplay across these type of uh, different instruments? Because inevitably, no matter what we do, there'll be laps, uh, there'll be overlaps as well as gaps in these types of uh, things, no matter how well we plan and we envisage and we do things. At the same time, I think uh, we can't avoid that totally, but what we can avoid is uh, two uh, very prolongated uh, mechanisms for resolution of those. And it would be useful to have some sort of forum or forums where these type of uh, gaps and overlaps can be quickly addressed and resolved. Interesting points. Uh, so we talked about infrastructure, we talked about policy, we talked about devices. Uh, so one of the things that probably doesn't get talked about as much as it should be in, in a digital environment is the is the uh, entire space of cybersecurity and cyber fraud. And we know that you know the, as digital grows, there are uh, you know the number of uh, cyber frauds and uh, data thefts and scams. They're also growing exponentially. And it's always the poor, uh, the, the the poor consumer who is unaware of about all these things get trapped in these scams. Uh, the government has recently said that all such breaches and everything needs to be reported uh, to certain. But at the end of the day, you know, is there something more that we can do to make sure? I mean, you can't obviously have a you know zero attack and zero fraud and zero scam. That will be like really ideal. But can we minimize it? Can we make sure that users don't fall into trap? Can there be some sort of, you know, heavy penalty for data thefts? For example, you know, Facebook data leak, which happened globally in the US, they had to pay some five hundred dollars, five hundred million dollars as penalty. In India, you know, nothing. You know, no, neither neither they paid penalty nor they compensated the users. 
So, uh, what are your views on 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 this aspect? So, what happens is this: uh, I mean, whenever you have any new type of infrastructure things, obviously, certain things will go wrong. So, for example, when you have more vehicles, when you have more variety of vehicles, when you have more passengers, when you have more frequent usage, and uh, let's say a rather limited uh, infrastructure in terms of let's say road or um, even lacks enforcement or poor functioning of these uh, systems. For example, on the roads, if you do have installed traffic lights, but those, those traffic lights are not really operational timely, okay? Or if you do have traffic lights and even if they are operational, but if there's no, no CCTV camera or let's say no traffic cops, etc., around that place to enforce uh, that people do follow the rules of the road, uh, there's likely to be more accidents. And whenever these accidents happen, uh, who gets hurt? Uh, it could be the person who's driving, but it could also be the pedestrian who is just walking on the sidewalk for that matter. Okay. Uh, but the fact is, whether a knife falls on the apple or an apple falls on the knife, uh, we know what gets sliced. Now, looking at from that perspective, when we are looking at the user safety, uh, one of very important thing is that the users themselves also need to be aware and empowered to take care of themselves in most situations. I'm not saying in all situations, but I'm saying in most situations. So for example, there's over the past few decades, we do have a lot of learning from the cybersecurity and data protection field. So, for example, in India, the level of fraud in the financial systems is relatively low in case of online transactions. Why? Because we do have a two-factor authentication. I mean, which, let's say, typically we do use uh, one-time passwords. Okay. Uh, now, that itself is a huge savior as far as the mitigation of frauds is concerned. I'm not saying it totally does away with it but it is significantly lower compared to some of the other countries in that sense. When you're looking at cybersecurity, et cetera, people may talk about firewalls, people may talk about antivirus, et cetera. But if we just look at past few decades, how we look at health, and especially in the past three years in the wake of pandemic, how we have started looking at health, I think there are huge important lessons that we can draw from. But even at subsequent ages and stages, and especially, for example, in the present pandemic, we saw that whenever you have something very specific, uh, which is a very uh, dangerous, you could also have a specific inoculation around that. Okay, And not just once, it could be multiple, uh, because there could also be mutations of those viruses, and that could also happen in the computer viruses also. They do mutate. We have seen these over the years. Okay, Then there are things around hygiene. So, for example, using a mask, washing your hands frequently, what does it do? Basically, what you are trying to do is you are trying to create some level of isolation that, okay, in case I'm in, impacted, I should not infect somebody else and vice versa. Okay. So, that is another uh, level of protection. Then we have things around frequent washing of hands. Okay. So, every time you touch a different surface or do something, wash your hands properly. And if you just think about that, you could think about, let's say, keeping your systems updated all the time. Okay. And then having good nutrition. That means you should have a diet, which is 
has a different components, okay? Not just one type of one particular thing that you have too much of it. So you should have different type of consumption. That's again something which we could look at even in terms of digital that, okay, yes, we should use different type of content uh, in that sense. And also avoid extremes that, okay, avoid too much of screen time, avoid too much of uh, talk time, etc. And then having some sort of discipline in terms of how do we use these things, whether in terms of uh, diet, sleep, exercise, etc. So what is it that we are doing in that sense? So if you are doing exercises, that means you are increasing your immunity. So if you are keeping your uh, systems, etc. updated and also cleaning them up once in a while, so your overall immunity of your systems uh, works much better. And then in terms of discipline, how much screen time do we have? What time do we use it? Uh, do we keep our notifications on all the time? Is it really necessary? Uh, what posture do we use? So things are not related only to the fraud aspect, cybersecurity, et cetera, but overall well-being, uh, cyber well-being. And in that sense, if you see, there are things around cybersecurity that we should look at. There are things around data protection, but also things around one's own usage practices that one uh, should do in terms of uh, how much do I use, et cetera. So for example, if you just switch from a white screen to a dark mode in the on the screen, uh, you're not only in enhancing your battery life, but you're also perhaps uh, easing the strain on your eyes. So they're simple things. You can increase the font size, you can uh, change many things for that matter today uh, on the devices and uh, th all those things can work wonders. Yeah, that's that's very interesting analogy that you uh, you know drew between healthcare and uh, cyber care. But here's the problem, Deepak, that what if the doctor that I'm going to starts leaking my healthcare data to somebody else, right? I may be taking all the precautions that he's telling me to do to stay healthy. But what if the doctor itself himself is, you know, is a person who's leaking my data? Today, if I am trusting the service providers or the platform that I'm on uh, to, off, to, to use their services, and if they themselves are beginning to leak out my personal data, then there is an issue there, isn't it? And today I have no recourse to either get compensation or even file a complaint. So, yes, so that's a huge concern in terms of data protection that, yes, I mean, uh, how do you uh, trust somebody uh, who might be harming you in this way? Number one, you do have, almost all the service providers do need some data to provide you the services, they also need some data for, to improve the services, okay? So that's one thing. Second thing is many of these services, which to the users in a way are free of cost in that sense that you are not paying any subscription for the, that particular service really. In that sense, these services are being cross-subsidized through advertising or other modes of uh, revenue generation. Thirdly, so the real issue is not about using my data. I mean, whether it's a doctor or a hospital or a social media company or a search engine, et cetera, they do and would use some of our data because that's something that they need to provide that particular basic service itself to us. At the same time, I think the real concern is around if they start misusing that data or causing harm, which they should not, using that data, and that's where we do need some guardrails. 
So it is not exactly true that we have absolutely no recourse. So under the Information Technology Act itself, there are sort of a mechanisms for compensation as well as for criminal proceedings there. But obviously, we do need more. And that's why uh, there's this whole thing around digital data protection bill. People like me have been involved for more than two decades in this journey. Uh, we do hope that uh, in India, we will have a data protection bill, which is pragmatic and also enforceable uh, in not too distant the future. And once we have that, and we have a greater awareness amongst the, both the users as well as the providers, and also we have an independent regulatory body to see that this is, law is actually complied with in spirit and words. I think that's when we'll see some semblance coming into the play in real life. But till that happens, uh, yes, uh, the services are proliferating. There's a more and more users who are coming online quickly and very rapidly. And uh, certain type of harms are sort of continuing to evolve every day. And that's a matter of a real concern. But at the same time, if you see, all these things are not really so new. So they might be new in terms of technological sort of a manifestation. But basically, these are all crimes, just like any other crime in the classical manner. So they could be, the motivations could be about greed. The motivation could be around uh, passion. The motivation could be around uh, reputation or anything like that. So, yes, the manifestation might be very different in this technological era, and the speed at which these crimes could be taking place is extremely fast. It's also a fact that, yes, the criminal could be physically far away from where the actual victim is. Uh, so, yes, those are the new type of paradigm that we do need to confront with. Right. Your final thoughts on whether India can achieve so everybody's talking about this $1 trillion digital economy by 2030. So that's another seven years away. Uh, do you think this is achievable and how do we get there? So about five years back, uh, McKinsey had done a study for Ministry of Electronics and IT. And that time we had come out with a India's trillion dollar digital economy by 2025. That was the vision at that point of time. I think it was in okay. 2018. Uh, however, I mean, we had this pandemic in between and several other challenges. And uh, obviously, because of those reasons, I would say that this timeline has been shifted. Uh, uh, so by 2030, I do hope that we will not just meet the $1 trillion digital economy, probably will be more than that. But overall, I would say that there are two important things here to consider. Number one, what is it that we call digital economy? So we need to be more precise and articulate about it. Second is that irrespective of whether it becomes in 2018, 2028 or 2030, et cetera, the fact is that for the next decade or so, the proportion of the digital economy is likely to continue growing within the overall GDP of the country. It's true, not just for India, also true globally in most of the countries. But more importantly, most of the incremental growth that is coming 
there the proportion of the digital economy will be even higher than the actual growth of the digital economy itself. That's what I believe. But right. yes, for these type of things to be, let's say, more precise, we do need more granular and timely data at a disaggregated manner so that uh, those who do these type of econometric modeling, etc., can actually ingest that data and come out with models and sort of uh, have more accurate figures uh, around what is the size of the digital economy, what is it that we call, what is included, what is not included. For example, one simple thing where I would say many associations and many other organizations go wrong is this. All that they do is they just basically aggregate all the turnover of their respective stakeholders. Okay. So let's say there's a particular sector and they say, okay, we have got so many members and all these people, so their revenue gets added and they say that, okay, we represent Y percentage of the national economy. Now, this is actually a wrong manner. The reason is what goes in the calculation of the national GDP in whatever manner that you do is basically about value addition. So for example, if I am producing something and if I supply that to you, okay. Now, if I supply, let's say, 100 rupees of uh, products to you and you in turn consume all that 100 rupees of product and you do your own value addition and you sell for 120 rupees, the overall output between the two of us could be 100 and 120, which is 220. Somebody could look at it, but that's not true. What is actually being done is 100 plus 20. So the 120 is the total value addition. Okay, 100 and then another 20 value addition. And then of course, there could be other subsequent stages also. But this is how we should look at in terms of what is the size of the digital economy. Uh, also in terms of what is the actual value being added in the system. I do not, I'm not an economist, so I won't venture into what is the current size, etc. But very broadly, this is how I would look at in terms of how we should look at the digital economy. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Deepak. I think those were great insights. I'm so glad that you were able to join with us today. Thanks again. Thanks, Thomas. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. 